It's the 29th of December 2019, which means that in approximately 62 and a half hours time, it will be the new year. We'll be in 2020. And at the risk of sounding just a little bit cliche, I think it's fair to say we're all playing host to our own kind of expectations for what the new year is going to bring, right? Like for some of us, we're anticipating gym memberships and shedding off a few kilos or if you're like me, you're looking into the new year and a bit too optimistic about how your football team's going to go this year. I'm back in St Kilda to be a top eight side myself. I'm sure there's lots of other optimistic predictions that we're all playing host to right now. But despite the optimism that we often want to grab onto and is probably being preached around churches throughout Australia today about how 2020 is going to be your year, that it's going to be a year of increase for you, the truth be told is that there's no magic wand that's going to get waved at midnight on the 31st that's going to somehow change us into something new. Like, I'm not trying to be like any kind of deliberate pessimist here, but we're going to see a mix of both in 2020. Churches will be planted in 2020, but we'll probably also have to say goodbye to loved ones. The kingdom of God is going to spread, people are going to come to know Jesus, and at the same time, we're probably going to see increased persecution for the church. Some people are going to get miraculously healed of their illnesses and other people will be diagnosed with illnesses. Some people will be given in marriage and then other people will regretfully divorce. So 2020 is probably just going to be a year of more of the same. And so we get caught between this tension between the kind of optimism that we love to cling to and then a pessimism that kind of puts us off a little bit. And the truth is we need something at this time of year that's going to anchor us just a lot deeper so that we can wisely navigate, well, whatever it is 2020 chooses to throw at us. See, none of us knows what's going to happen next year, but the good news for us today is that we can be deeply attached to, intimate with, in personal relationship with the one who does know. And it's in that light that I'd like us to turn to Proverbs chapter 3. And if you have your Bible, I'd like you uh, just to join me in reading verses 1 through 12 there in Proverbs chapter 3. It says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make, your, make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. I want to ask you the question this morning, what do you find yourself subscribing to? And I'm not talking about your Disney Plus subscription, or perhaps even your Netflix account. What I'm asking you is, what are the things that you subscribe to with respect to your own worldview. You see, whether we do it consciously or unconsciously, each of us operates within a certain ideology or worldview. We, we pick a story and we insert ourselves into that larger story and we become characters in that story. 
And this becomes the interpretive grid through which we view our life. None of us just lives in a vacuum. We interpret the events around us relative to a story. And of course, for the Christian, what we're called to do time and time and time again through Scripture is to insert ourselves into this large, grand meta-narrative of redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation, where we find ourselves as characters in God's story, where we realize that actually we're not the main character in the story at all, God is. You could say that our story is meant to be a gospel-centered story, that this is how we're meant to view our lives, or at least that's how it ought to be. But what often happens to us, and it's something that we see happen through uh, the whole Old Testament with the people of Israel, something that happened to them and happens to us today is that we forget that story. We have a tendency to to drift, we, we get drawn away to other ideologies, other worldviews, other ways to interpret our existence, and it makes us go astray. There's one um, theologian who put it this way, James K.A. Smith. He said, Our culture often sells us faulty, fantastical maps of the good life that paint alluring pictures that draw us toward them. All too often we stake the expedition of our lives on them, setting sail toward them with every sheet hoisted. And we do so without thinking about it because these maps work on our imagination, not our intellect. It's not until we're shipwrecked that we realize we trusted faulty maps. And I'm sure we would all testify to the fact that we've all been shipwrecked from time to time, perhaps even this year. You see, what Proverbs 3 wants to remind us is that none of us has godly wisdom as a default setting. That is not the thing that we will find ourselves drifting towards. In fact, what we find is the exact opposite. What we drift towards is what Proverbs here calls being wise in your own eyes, leaning on your own understanding. And when that happens, it's, it's not some little issue here. In fact, when this happens, when we, when we lose sight of who we are under God, we can no longer operate out of a place of wisdom. In, in fact, the way the Bible speaks about wisdom, the fear of the Lord and wisdom are just about synonymous terms here in Proverbs. As one theologian put it, Graham Goldsworthy, he said, wisdom is a characteristic of a person who is rightly related to God. But over time, what what can happen to us, even if we've been Christians for decades, is that we can develop a kind of Frank Sinatra syndrome that says, I did it my way. I will do it my way. I am the master of my fate and the captain of my own soul. I'll do it my way. even if we've been Christians for decades. And it's because of this drift, this, this current that we often get caught up in, that we get exhorted right there in verse 1, do not forget my teaching. Keep my commandments. Because it's something that we forget. Now, when we hear the word keep, we kind of hear obey, comply with my teaching, the same way you've got to keep the speed limit when you're driving today. But The word keep here actually has a far deeper meaning at play. You see, keep actually means to guard or to maintain something with the utmost vigilance. It's it's really a defensive word. You could say that the New Zealand cricket team is struggling to keep their wicket at the moment. They're not being particularly defensive at the moment. See, Proverbs 4.23 gets at this idea. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. You see, I play, uh, I play a little bit of cricket with the Sondergelds uh, some Sunday afternoons. And let me tell you, when you're facing young Jordan Sondergeld, you've got to be particularly defensive in keeping your wicket. It's not something you can do passively. 
It's actually something you've got to be quite vigilant about, especially if Alan Conroy is there coaching him. You see, Jordan's actually pretty savage. He's been known to swing the ball both ways. Uh, particularly, it's his deadly late in-swinger that's been known to get me unstuck from time to time. And it's not something that I can do passively. I have to watch his approach to the crease. Is he close to the stumps or is he a little bit further away? I have to watch the ball out of his hands. Is he, is he going to roll his wrists or is he going to do that cheeky thing where he basically bowls a quick leggy that he often tries to get me caught out on? I have to watch the ball through the air off the deck and watch it right onto the bat. This is something I have to actually keep a fair bit of guard on when I'm playing cricket. And when it comes to the Lord's commandments, we need to realise it's actually a very vigilant exercise. We, we need to employ measures in our lives that keep us from forgetting. And as far as I can see, the, the Bible's strategy for us to, to keep ourselves from forgetting, it seems to just be immersion. That for us to continue to operate out of a place of wisdom, to continue to operate out of a place of the fear of the Lord, we need to immerse ourselves in His commandments. We need to stay subscribed to the Word of God. In fact, look at the way uh, Deuteronomy 6 describes it. It says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then look at verse 12. Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Immersion. You ask anyone, what's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. If you, you want to learn French, yeah, you could pick up the textbook, but the best way to do it, go live in France. Spend a couple of months there, just by default, you'll probably start speaking French. <laughs> Immersion is how we learn these things. And so Proverbs 3 kind of picks up this idea from Deuteronomy 6 and says, yeah, well, you've got to, you've got to bind them around your neck, you've got to write them on the tablet, of your heart. You see, so often what happens is that although we say we believe the gospel, though we, you know, we, we tip the hat and we affirm the teachings of Christ, though we perceive the world through the revelation of Jesus Christ and, and what he did on the cross, somehow our doctrine doesn't always inform our decision making. Anyone else notice that in their own lives? You see, we, we tend to subscribe and immerse ourselves in other sources and we let that dictate our decision making. You see, the way the Bible speaks, it, it puts forward two schools of wisdom that you can subscribe to. One is what the Bible calls godly wisdom, and then the other one is what might just be called worldly wisdom. And so often, what we do, instead of subscribing to godly wisdom and the fear of the Lord, we, we subscribe to worldly secular wisdom, and then we, we smother it in enough Christianese to make us feel like we're not enticed. <laughs> Sometimes we can uh, really deceive ourselves in that regard. Look at how... Um, James chapter 5 describes these two worldviews. It says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Did you hear that? <laughs> James describes selfish ambition as not only earthly and unspiritual, but demonic. Welcome to church. <laughs> How's, how's that one landing with us this morning? You see, this is a time of year that we can become just like the world as we plan our ambitions for the next year. We can, we can be like 50 Cent, you know, just get rich or die trying, chasing that paper. 
That, that's the way we can set ourselves up coming into a new year. And often, um, I think one of the reasons we don't realize that we're drifting is that if we're honest, there is actually just a, at least a little bit of overlap between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. They're not a complete dichotomy. Look, for example, look at what um, Proverbs uh, 13.22 says. It says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. What's it talking about there? Long-term savings accounts. You'd find that in secular wisdom. Uh, Proverbs 22.7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. What's the Bible talking about there? Debt management. There's plenty of secular wisdom on debt management. I recommend you subscribe to some of it. Proverbs 28.19, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Again, what's it talking about? That's how to make best use of your investments. It's, our, it's showing you how to have plenty of bread. Savings accounts, debt management, how to manage your investments. I mean, this is the kind of things you'll find in a book like The Barefoot Investor, which has sold quite a few copies over the last couple of years. Alice and I have it on our bookshelf. It's a really good book. But the truth is, the, the author of Proverbs could probably look at The Barefoot Investor and just yell plagiarism at the top of his lungs. There is significant overlap sometimes between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And I think sometimes we just get a bit caught in between when it comes to making decisions as God's people. But although there's some degree of overlap, we have to acknowledge that godly wisdom will push us in a direction that is so countercultural to anything that word, the world would throw at us. I mean, do you remember the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12? This rich man had produced a very large crop, this one particular harvest, and he thought, well, I need to expand the enterprise. Yeah, I need to find more place to, to store all this crop. I'm going to build bigger barns. I mean, you could say he's handling his investment pretty well. But then it says, the man resolved to eat, drink, and be married, just so he could relax. He, had a, he was just in it for himself. And then the pronouncement comes from the mouth of God, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You're not going to find that in the barefoot investor. <laughs> you see, sometimes godly wisdom will push you in a direction that is just so countercultural to what the world thinks. Or even the rich young ruler in Luke 18, Jesus said to him, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. You see, the wisest decision that that rich young ruler could have made was to sell all his possessions and follow Jesus. It, godly wisdom is just a little bit different. It operates at another level. You see, the distinctive between the two is that worldly wisdom wants to operate where the self is the center of orientation, godly wisdom, God is the center of orientation. And this is why James can talk about the meekness of wisdom. Because it's wisdom that first and foremost is oriented to God. Now, I'm sure the second I say some of this, there's going to be some people in the room who cringe a little bit. And I, I think sometimes the reason we cringe at stories like this is not so much that we're unwilling to make a big bold move for Jesus but I don't know maybe in our youth as a relatively naive zealous young Christian maybe we we read something like the rich young ruler and we we did something a little bit zealous that we're not proud of and things got a little bit uncomfortable in the home there were a couple of bills we couldn't quite pay and and ever since then we've we've kind of just retreated into this defense mechanism and we label it wisdom 
And what we're actually doing, we're often just subscribing to worldly wisdom in all of our thinking. You see, if you're cringing today, the Bible is calling us to repent from our worldly wisdom and it's inviting you to take up godly wisdom, not naive zealotry. <laughs> Be reminded of that today. And you know, we're speaking about finances so far, but what about relationships? You see, worldly wisdom, just about everywhere says that it's an absolute no-brainer that you should cohabitate with your partner before marriage. Worldly wisdom says, well, it's a no-brainer. To do otherwise is stupid. You've got to make sure that you know, you've got good dynamics within the home. You've got to know how to hang the towels and all that kind of thing. Things I'm learning now. Worldly wisdom says you've got to do all that before marriage. But godly wisdom is completely countercultural. Worldly wisdom might say, hey, look, if you are entitled to sick days, who cares whether you're sick or not? Take them anyway. Godly wisdom and worldly wisdom don't always line up. So the question that Proverbs 3 is asking us is, are we on guard? Are we, are we vigilant in keeping God's command, commandments? Are we, are we so immersed in God's teachings that we're not going to be prone to sway with the currents of culture, whatever they may look like in 2020? There was a really um, pointy question that was asked by Ray Ortland in a book I read this week. He says, when was the last time your life looked obviously different from the life of someone who does not trust Jesus at all. If you never surprise an unbelieving friend by your sacrifices for Christ, it is probably because what you are living for is the same earthly payoff he is living for. It's a pointy question to think through. You know, so much of what Proverbs 3 is talking about here reminds me of my favourite psalm. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. All right, so that's the first thing. We've got some faulty things that we can subscribe to, but the second thing we learn here in Proverbs 3 is that there's good incentive for us to obey. It's it's not just that it's right for us to obey, to fear the Lord, but you know it's actually good for you? It actually has benefits. You see, look at the list of some of the incentives we're given here. It says, The length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. It's talking about reputation. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. It says, Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Fear of the Lord is a beneficial thing. It's good for you. Now, the second I say that, no doubt it needs qualification because there is a so-called gospel that has plagued the church for decades known as the prosperity gospel. And if you're unaware of it, it's basically a false gospel that's gone around saying that, hey, if, if you're in Christ, if you know Jesus, there will be no problems with your health. Uh, you will have perfect health, perfect wealth. Life is going to just be a constant state of bliss for you, no suffering whatsoever. And, and advocates of this prosperity gospel will use verses like these ones here in Proverbs 3 to make their point. But what we need to appreciate here is that Proverbs is, is not your typical kind of biblical book. It, it's a very different literary genre to what you might be familiar in other parts of the Bible. Like for example, Proverbs is, is a kind of input, output, cause and effect kind of book. So when, when, the, when a proverb is put forward, when the, 
the writer of Proverbs puts forward a statement of wisdom, he's basically saying that this is a claim on the truth of what happens 95% of the time. Like For example, Proverbs 10.4 says that a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And that's true, right? But is it possible to get rich while being lazy? Well, yeah, it is. You could win the lottery. You could have parents that give you a huge inheritance and you never work a day in your life. I mean, I know plenty of people on the Gold Coast where that's the case. <laughs> Might be the same here in Toowoomba. There's a lot of lazy people who get rich from time to time. But as a general rule, Proverbs is saying that a slack hand causes poverty. So when Proverbs forwards a wise statement, you, you can bank on it, but not quite the same way you would bank on, say, a promise in a New Testament letter. It, it's a different type of writing. But at the same time, Proverbs is providing us with a kind of incentives that if you are a person who fears the Lord, you, you keep the commandments, you trust in the Lord with all your heart, generally speaking, it's going to nourish you in a way that you wouldn't otherwise be nourished. And though it's, it's primarily talking about spiritual nourishment, it seems like it kind of skips realms sometimes into the physical. Like when it says healing to your flesh, and refreshment to your bones. It's, it's primarily using physical imagery to portray a spiritual truth. You know, the same way we would say in the New Testament, where you know, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, where we're using body parts to describe functions in the local church. The same sort of thing's happening here. And yet, having said that, I, I can't help but wonder, is despite the fact that it's primarily talking about spiritual realities here, if there is a genuine physical meaning to this text and others like it. I mean, as a physio, when, when I read texts like Proverbs 17.22, which say, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones, I, I, I wouldn't go to the stake for it, but I can't help but wonder, <laughs> is there even just the slightest chance that that's talking about osteoporosis? I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I can't be sure. I mean... But one of the things health professionals are telling us time and time again is that sometimes, and my emphasis there is on sometimes, our illnesses are what are called psychosomatic. That is to say that the state of our mind, the state of our well-being, the state of our soul, every now and then can manifest itself physically. Like For example, when I get stressed for long periods of time, I get ulcers in my mouth. Like the kind of stress when you've got to do five sermons in a row and you've never done that before. That kind of stress? Yeah. Um, I get ulcers in my mouth. So this week I'm eating my Christmas pudding and I've got to be careful where I put the spoon because it keeps upsetting my ulcers. So the spiritual reality of fear, I guess you could call it that, manifested itself physically. And so when I read things like having fear of the Lord will add length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you, hey, maybe there's a more of a physical component there than we would maybe typically think of. Now, you'd be careful how far you'd push that. You could get into a lot of error very quickly, but it's interesting that though we have a lot of these multi-layered, complex problems in our world like depression and anxiety, is it, is it mere coincidence that we're experiencing these illnesses and other stress-related illnesses at such a high degree, like we've never had at any point in history, at a time in history when we've basically thrown out the moral compass? I mean, is that... Is that mere coincidence? I, it's at least food for thought. <laughs> but what this is saying is that there is a genuine spiritual nourishment 
in some sense, a financial benefit and perhaps even a physical refreshment that comes from keeping the commandments. Now, if that's true, how do we fight off the prosperity gospel? How do we make sure we don't fall into that camp? Well, like I said earlier, we need to understand how Proverbs was written as a genre of writing, but we also need to know where Proverbs fits within the rest of the Bible. You see, Proverbs is just one-third of what is called the wisdom literature. So you've got Proverbs, you've got Ecclesiastes, and you've got Job. And you really can't appreciate the message of Proverbs properly until you've really um, done the time with Job and Ecclesiastes. See, Proverbs is a cause and effect book. You do this, you get that. But Ecclesiastes sort of says, well, yeah, generally speaking, you do this and you do that, but every now and then it gets flipped. Sometimes the good guys suffer and the bad guys, they prosper. Sometimes that's how it happened. And then we get an entire case study, 42 chapters long in the book of Job, where we see that play out, where we see a blameless, righteous man suffering in all sorts of ways. You see, it's possible for God-fearing, wise Christian people to suffer. You know, there's a measles epidemic in Australia at the moment. It's possible that that could hit a Christian home. We're not saying that we're immune from suffering. It just seems that there's a general principle that life over the long term is good for you. It's, it enables you to flourish when you're living in the fear of the Lord. So, what do we do with that? We, we reject the kind of cold-hearted materialism of the prosperity gospel but at the same time we can appreciate that fearing the lord is actually good for you it's something that we can be encouraged in and there's a nice uh nice guard i love these words from c.s lewis he says our father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant inns but will not encourage us to mistake them for home yeah if you fear the lord generally speaking there's there's nourishment coming your way but this side of eternity is not our home we look to the age to come. And then the last thing that we see here is not only is it good for us, but it's actually an invitation to a personal relationship with our Heavenly Father. You see, so far we've looked at this idea of fearing the Lord as though it's kind of a, um, a reliance upon just a, a mere code of ethics sitting, on, sitting off in a book somewhere. You know, it's talking about teaching and commandments, but the more you read the the proverb, as it unfolds, it actually gets far more personal. You get not only an open Bible, but you get open arms. Now, if you look there at uh, verses 5 and 6, these are the verses that we love a lot, don't we? I mean, these are the ones that we put on coffee mugs. They're probably on bumper stickers in that car park. They might be on fridge magnets. I mean, we, we love verses 5 and 6, don't we? But sadly, we don't actually always realize what these verses are saying to us. Um, to my ears, when I hear the word, you know, in all your ways, acknowledge him. When I hear the word acknowledge, the kind of things that come to my mind are relatively quick transactions. Like, for example, my real estate agent will send me a, an email saying, hey, we've got an inspection coming up next week, and then I'll click onto the next email, and then it'll say, oh, will you send an acknowledgement that you've read you know, that particular email back to the real estate agent? Oh, yep, sure. I'll, I'll tip the hat and say, yes, I, I acknowledge you. Or... Sometimes I get into a bit of trouble. Alice will send me a really long emotional text message where there's a lot of details, a lot of intricacies, and then I might send back the thumbs up. Not a win, okay? (laughs) Acknowledging her like that is not cool. I'm sure many guys have felt that experience before. 
You see, when I hear acknowledgement, I think quick transaction, like I'm going through a Macca's drive through I, I don't want to go in there and talk to someone at the desk. I just want to say, give me the apple pie and a large Coke, and I'm in and out. That's, that's what acknowledgement sounds like to my ears, right? Um, but Bruce Waltke, who they say is probably the best commentator on the book of Proverbs, he says that if you were to paraphrase what this verse is saying, it it would be fair to translate it like this. In all your ways, desire his presence. You see, to, to acknowledge him in all your ways is really to know him in all your ways. It's an invitation to personal relationship. You can't treat Jesus like a Macca's drive through There is so much more on offer for us here. You see, what we have here is a fatherly invitation to intimacy. And look at it, how it progresses through the through the proverb, my son, do not forget my teaching. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And it's only in trusting him in this personal, fatherly way that will ever result in us truly knowing him. He desires, he desires for us to desire him and his presence. No matter what life's throwing at you, no matter what 2020 brings, he wants us to know him in every season, whether your barns are filled with plenty or, or maybe you are in a season like it's described there in verse 11 where yeah, the Lord's he's got the whip out a little bit. He's bringing you through some hard seasons to mold you into the person he's called you to be. No matter what season you find yourself in, don't despise or be weary of him. Know him and know him personally. Press into him. You see, 2019 has been, for me, probably one of the best years of my life. I, mean, I got married back in May. I, I travelled overseas for the first time in my entire life. I've been blessed with an incredible work opportunity here at the project. It's, it, it's been a good year. I, I liked 2019. <laughs> I hope I get another one. It was good. But it hasn't been without its challenges either. You know, like less than three weeks into our marriage, I was unemployed. I've moved three or four times this year and I'm quite sick of it. <laughs> I'm glad I've actually settled a little bit now. I'm, I'm learning to be a pastor. God help us all. <laughs> it's had its challenges this year, right? And one of the biggest challenges is that Alice and I have left our friends and family behind. I mean, I was on the coast for three days this week for Christmas. I had a ball. I mean, I spent most of Christmas Eve with my brothers all the back and forth banter that we have in our household was awesome. Playing Xbox, Xbox out for coffee, uh, Christmas Day with my family, eating food, sharing stories, and then of course backyard cricket by the pool. And I was hitting them well too. So I was I was on a real high this week. Like it was a good week, good way to finish the year. But can I tell you, driving home Friday, I felt atrociously homesick. I'd been on this high all week spending more time with my family than I had in seven months and driving home, coming home to an empty house, Alice is on the coast this week, I mean, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, I, I could barely get any work done on a Friday afternoon. Friday sucked. <laughs> I mean, that was a day when I was feeling the weight of following Jesus. I was, I was feeling the weight of keeping his commandments. I was feeling the weight of trusting him in all my ways. And it's in those moments that the Lord says, hey, son, come and know me. <laughs> hey, come, come trust me with all your heart, all your life, all your circumstances. Lay it on me. I, I've got this. Don't go subscribing to anything else. Let me refresh you. Those are the moments. 
that God wants to get nice and personal with. And maybe you'll have them in 2020. I, I don't know what's coming, but He does. And He invites you to trust Him no matter what's coming. You know, it says in verse 6 that He'll make our paths straight. It doesn't mean He'll make our paths easy. That is not what He's getting at there. He's, he's contrasting the crooked paths that the wicked take and says that He'll make our paths straight, non-crooked, non-evil. That's what He's getting at there. But I'm sure if you follow Jesus for any length of time, you'll know that it's usually that uneasy path that draws you into closer communion with Him. That's generally when things go down. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, I have learnt to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. One of the band come and join me. Now we hear a, a message like this at, at this time of year and we think, yeah, right, man, I've, I've blown it. I've, I've blown it this year in, in different parts of my life. I haven't lived in the fear of the Lord in, in certain areas. I have... I have subscribed to, to other ways of thinking, whether it's my own internal ways of thinking how my life should be or what the world tells me my life should be like. Um, and maybe even if you're planning for next year, you're going, I've got to go home and scribble a few pages out of my diary. I've got to change some things here. Well, there's good news for us. There is one who came and lived with perfect wisdom, who always lived in the fear of the Lord, who was always united to his Father, and that is Jesus. And in the wisdom of God, in a wisdom that we can't completely comprehend, in the wisdom of God, he sent Jesus to the cross to die for our sin. And he did it, one, so that we could be finally reoriented to God, living in fear of him. And then secondly, there's good news, we can, we can pick up the ball and go again. <laughs> if you haven't lived wisely in 2019... There's an invitation for you. Hey, come, come live wisely in, in 2020. You know what I love at the beginning of the book of Proverbs is it says that wisdom is not just for like an elite class. It says these words can make wise the simple. There's <laughs> no one's uh, kicked out of the Bible's wisdom school. It says it makes wise the simple. So you can pick up the ball and run again in 2020. Let me finish by reading 1 Corinthians 1.30. It says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord.